So I'm taking this right off the cover of the book, Where to Live, What to Buy, and Who Will Lead Canada's Future, a book called Next by Daryl Bricker, and Daryl's with us today. So answer your question there, Mr. Bricker. Who will lead? What kind of person? We're sitting there looking at Justin Trudeau and now Aaron O'Toole. What are people looking for? Well, in Canadian elections, it's really all about who can connect with uh, new Canadian suburbanites. So when you look at who decides elections now, it's not the old uh, putting together, you know, downtown Montreal and downtown Toronto, and that decides who, who wins an election. It's really about the suburbs, which people don't really appreciate that 90% of our population growth over the last two decades has been in car commuting suburbs in this country. So um, it's, it's who can connect with the lives of those people, disproportionately new Canadians, but not exclusively. And that also brings with it, when you say new Canadians, immigration, you're, we're also seeing that shift from single family homes or even people living solo into homes where we're back to three generations living under one roof. And then how that affects choices on their part, but also pitches by politicians. Right. And, and it's something that people don't appreciate. One of the fastest growing categories in, in Canada in terms, of, uh, in terms of households is multiple generations now living together. Some of it is because of the, uh, the uh, practices from the countries where we're, we're bringing people in, disproportionately uh, Pacific-based countries. But there's a, there's a tradition more of multi-generational families living together. So that's part of it. But then the other part of it is the cost of real estate in this country, particularly in the places that people want to live and work, is suggesting, particularly particularly if you have, say, for example, a large family home in which you're, it's populated by empty nesters and you have kids who their only option to get into the real estate market is to move a long way away, there might be some sense for those two generations to get together. One of them is uh, so the younger family can live in a, in, a, in a more desirable neighborhood, but also there's some light childcare that goes along with that. But increasingly what we're finding, though, is that uh, the older population, because we're living much longer than we were uh, expected to live, I mean, the average Canadian now lives to the age of 81 or 82, uh, that they need some help at home too, and they want to stay in their home. So so there's a lot of logic dictating the potential growth for, um, for um, uh, multi-generational families living together. So kids moving home is, is a different trend than just living in the basement because they don't feel like leaving and they want their laundry done. This has now become an economic matter. Right. There's 50% of the, 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 uh, the people between the ages of 18 and 35 living in the greater Toronto area, but it's similar in Montreal and it's similar in Vancouver, any of the major cities, live with their parents, 50%. Wow. So this isn't a small number. And it's not just a question of failure to launch. Uh, some of that is there, but there's also about 10% of those people are actually taking care of their senior parents. So this gets me back to this point. So the politician, maybe not in a COVID election, but in general, uh, sending out a pitch, whether it's a social media uh, pitch or whether it's knocking on a door with a pamphlet, who are they talking to? Uh, the grandparents, uh, the mom and dad that are still working, or the younger generation that's living in the basement or on the third floor? Well, it's really about drawing together the interests of all of them with a single message. So, um, but really understanding the geography of what you're dealing with 
And the demography of what you're dealing with is what the book is about. Because mm -hmm. quite frankly, people don't, these are basic facts of what's going on in Canada. And so many people just don't know them or have a completely different perception in their mind as to who Canadians are. I worked in the television business, as you know, for many years, and it's not dissimilar in politics. Everybody spends all of their energy trying to pitch the younger generation. The younger generation doesn't have money to spend. When you're selling ads on television screens, it should be to people who have money. And it's kind of the same in politics. And, and you try to capture that in the book, which is understand who this, well, you call them perennials, which is the, the 65 plus. Well, you can even drop it down to the 50s. I mean, the, uh, the, the truth is that with the population growing uh, mostly from aging, and from immigration and not from new kids being born. And this is always a shock when I say this to people. It's like, you know, the birth rate of Canada is 1.5 <laughs> and falling. Yeah. yeah. And will probably fall even further as a result of what's going on with COVID because we're not bringing in immigrants who tend to have a slightly higher birth rate. Plus, uh, in at times of economic uncertainty, people don't have kids. So our expectation is that we'll actually go lower. The only way that our population continues to grow is through people aging and through bringing in immigrants. Well, we've, we've missed two thirds of this year's immigrants. They're not gonna be coming in. So if we have any population growth, it's because people are not dying at the rate that they, they used to or at the age that they used to. And so we're not gonna get a blackout bump or a COVID bump. No, it's, and, 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 and you know, when you go back and you actually take a look at what did happen in those places, they made for interesting headlines. But when you go and take a look at the statistics, and uh, there was a great study that just came out from the Brookings Institute on this, there actually was no brownout baby bump. Mm -hmm. there, I mean, these ideas that, you know, people stay home and they have lots of kids. No, actually, there's a lot of intense problems with, with people staying home related to income and, and you know, <laughs> other things. But, uh, but the biggest one is economic uncertainty. Am I going to have a job? And uh, the, uh, the act of having a child for most people these days is really a positive statement about the future. And if they don't feel that they're going to have the ability to be able to uh, uh, absorb the economic costs of having a kid, they delay. So, I am so surprised at the number of conversations that I have with 30-somethings or late 20-somethings that are just, they're really looking at this in a very different way. I don't know what kind of world I'm going to bring the children into. I don't know if I'll ever be able to afford a house. Uh, we are always going to need two incomes. And they're really, they're, they're stalling that out. And, and it's not just in Canada, Senator, it's around the world. So our view is that, oh, well, this is, doesn't apply in China. The birth rate in China is exactly the same as it is in yep. Canada. In yep. fact, they have one of the fastest aging large populations. Well, they do have the fastest aging largest population in the world. India, the birth rate today is 2.1. They're just at replacement level. You need mm -hmm. to have 2.1 kids to just yep. keep your population steady without immigration. So, you know, this isn't just a Canadian phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. The biggest thing that we're going to be encountering demographically worldwide, the single biggest event, and it's incredibly underreported, uh, is the fact that the global population is probably going to peak somewhere between 2040 and 2060. And then it's going to start to decline rapidly. And how low it's going to go, we don't know. That references an earlier book you wrote, The, uh, the Empty Planet, where we really are depopulating. First, there's going to be a peak. We'll, we'll hit 10 billion, but then it's, it starts to slow. Yeah, we're not going to get to 10 billion. We're going to be lucky if we get to maybe eight and a half billion or maybe with this COVID decline, hmm. maybe even less. I mean, the United States, they're currently predicting that there's going to be 300 million or actually 30 million fewer children born 
as a result of what's happening uh, with COVID. I mean, that, amazing, that's, yeah, stunning. And, and when you take a look at the millennial birth rate in the United States, it's one. Yeah. You know, so, so that speaks to that very issue, which is thinking about it in a very different way. Right. And that's, this is what I'm trying to communicate through next, which is you ha people have all of these assumptions about who Canadians are that may have been true at one time, but are rapidly changing. So when we look at what's happening, so south of the border, we've got two, uh, I'm going to just say old white guys in their 70s running to be right. president of the United States. We've now got Justin Trudeau and Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole is actually younger than Justin Trudeau, isn't Yeah, two millennials. It? Yeah. So what, what does that mean? What, how are they going to... We'll forget about the U.S. for now, but in Canada. So how do these two distinguish themselves? Is it going to be the old left-right, the spending versus constraint? Well, what's going to be the differentiation points? Well, both of them are trying to appeal to the same demographic. Exactly. I mean, they, they build their coalitions in different ways, but the swing part of their uh, coalition is, is, uh, is the same demographic. And, and, it, and it's commuters, disproportionately new Canadians living outside of our major cities. So the question is, what's on the agenda for them? And the things that are on the agenda for them tend to be disproportionately economic because that's what they struggle with. So the question is, who's got an economic message that can appeal to them mostly? All of this ideological uh, foo-foo that goes on relative to uh, both Social parties. policies, yeah. yeah it's, they're not really big topics of debate. Yeah. Uh, but um, if people are able, parties and leaders are able to differentiate themselves in terms of being able to show that you understand the lives of the people who are living in those situations and what it is that government can do to assist with that or what government can get out of that they should leave to the private sector, they should lead to families or whatever. That's, that's where the sweet spot is in, in, in this, in this conversation. So what we're hearing from Justin Trudeau is we're going to spend our way into prosperity. We're going to give you everything you need. We're going to have a big revolution in this country and change every social program. Uh, I think that has people a little bit nervous. W what could Aaron O'Toole's, uh, pitch be then in the face of that? Well, the thing about the Liberal Party is that it basically is the party of the dreamers, right? I mean, these are people who uh, have, uh, they're architects, they're not, you know, repair people and builders. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're people right. who have big plans. Conservatives tend to get hired to make sure that the faucets don't leak. Uh, that we, you know, get our bills under control, that kind of thing. They're not necessarily seen as a visionary type of party. So the challenge for Aaron O'Toole is to talk about the good parts of what Justin Trudeau is proposing that people want, and then to talk about how he's going to fix the parts that uh, Justin Trudeau may not be trusted as much to deliver, but also to keep things focused on the immediate. So when people are talking right. about tomorrow today, they're talking and, and we're being interviewed on a, on a Thursday, but they're talking about Friday. They're not talking about 10 right. years from now. Exactly. So, so big esoteric world changing views, build back better, you know, is a, is a, you know, a phrase obviously stolen from the United States. From the U S yeah. But that's not what Canadians are really talking about. If you're talking about a big visionary plan, that's going to get us something by 2050 Canadians are going, well, I'm, I'm having a hard time paying my bills this week. Correct. So the party that can be able to speak in an authentic way, to the people who are struggling with 
understanding what the next day or the next week is going to bring. And they're able to create confidence in, in helping people through government to get through those trials and tribulations, those are the ones that are probably going to do better. So the sweet spot for Aaron O'Toole is the vulnerability for Justin Trudeau, who likes to dream big, mm-hmm. uh, but doesn't necessarily have a great record for delivering or making a difference in an immediate way for, for people in their lives. They tend to be very slow about decision-making, uh, but great on vision. Whereas the conservatives, their sweet spot is right in the zone that I'm talking about. So the question is whether or not Aaron O'Toole can deliver that credibly and whether or not he can, you know, keep the muck off him. That's definitely going to be coming his way from not just the liberals, but their fellow travelers, but also anybody who's a progressive voter. The other thing that's going on, and and I know this because Saskatchewan is home, but, but your figures are quite stark, which the number of people living from Manitoba West is now much greater than the population living from Quebec East. We'll put Ontario aside for a little moment. But there, that's where the growth is, again, immigration-based, but also taking people from other parts of Canada because there have been jobs there for people to work at, to aspire to. Right. So uh, obviously Alberta is going through an absolutely horrific circumstance right now, and they were a Mm -hmm. big driver of this. But the interesting thing is when you take a look at the statistics for Alberta, they haven't experienced a dramatic decline in population as a result. People tend to hang around. Uh, The question is whether or not the people who are going to be forced to move, where they move, are they going to move to Quebec and are they going to move to Atlantic Canada? The evidence so far, not really. Ontario now is actually growing at a rate below the national average. Most of the growth in the country is really taking place in the, in the region that you identified, which is a really new phenomena in Canada. But it not only does it have uh, implications for um, what happens with business in the economy, it has huge implications for politics because we have a representation by population system. So when you took a look at the last census, uh, when they did the seat redistribution and added more seats, where did they add them? Well, mostly in the suburbs of Toronto and disproportionately, actually proportionally to the population in Western Canada. And that's going to continue to change. I mean, we have a very small number of senators or MPs representing, I mean, per, in Saskatchewan, it's, it's maybe indicative now, but in five years, it may not be. And that process of change is very complicated. And this goes back to a book that John Ibbotson and I put out, uh, I guess, coming on, what is it, seven or eight years ago called The Big Shift. The Big Shift, indeed. And this is, and this is The Big Shift. And, uh, you know, if you take a look at uh, Canadian politics since the turn of the century, people, you know, don't understand, they, they tend not to look back. They, they, they just, mm-hmm. you know, look at the immediate. There's been seven elections since uh, 2000, the last, the, starting in 2000. The Liberals have won exactly. four, of, four of them. <laughs> The Conservatives have won three of them. So pretty close. But the Conservatives have won uh, four popular votes and the Liberals have only won three. So the race is actually quite close. And what uh, John Ibbotson and I talked about was that if you change the composition of the population, what used to look like the natural governing party mm-hmm. and, and the ease with which it gets elected changes. And so the, you, go Sorry, ahead, go ahead. And that increasingly as you go through the century if the population patterns that you're you just pointed out and i've written about um uh if they continue in the same direction then the odds get better and better for the conservatives through every 
every election. Let me just recap for people if they didn't read the big shift. It's, it's really, you said the Conservative Party will be to the 21st century what the Liberal Party had been to the 20th, which was the natural governing party. And then you're pulling these stats out to say those shifts are there in terms who's who's resonating. Right. Now, could, did we anticipate Justin Trudeau? No, we did not. Yeah. Uh, and as John Ibbotson likes to say, and I, I don't necessarily disagree with him, but I maybe would nuance it a bit. He likes to say the analysis was, uh, was spot on, but the prediction wasn't necessarily great. <laughs> uh, and and I, I think that's fair, but we're only talking about two elections. What we talked about was the direction through the century, which is easy to do when you know you're not going to be alive through the entire century. But, uh, but, as I said, when you take a look at it, we're not far off. The Conservatives have won four of the seven in terms of popular vote. The Liberals right. have won four of the seven elections. The next one uh, could put the elections in a tie. What do you make of, and we won't get into the specifics of it, but something like the WE scandal and the resignation of a, a finance minister, do, it, does that stuff stick? I mean, when, what we saw in the last election with the SNC-Lavalin or the blackface or whatever it was, is it didn't seem to matter to people. Well, it did. I mean, the Liberals, I mean, up against the weakest Conservative leader that's, you know, Canadians okay. considered since It's Trudeau a fair Park. argument, yep. Uh, Andrew Scheer had a, a terrible election campaign in just yeah. about any way that you could measure it. He still won the popular vote. Uh, he was he was pipped yeah. in the end because he lost in the 905. But if you change uh, the vote results by maybe 5% in the 905, it's a conservative government rather than a liberal government. Mm -hmm. So those scandals were the absolute reason that Justin Trudeau found himself in the situation that he did. I mean, this was the biggest rock star in Canadian politics since his father. Right. Up against the weakest leader the Conservative Party has put in front of a national electorate since 19, uh, 1980. Or actually, yeah, 1980. 79, 80, yeah. yeah. Uh, this, uh, so this has, uh, th this comes back to our earlier point about then how do you message if you're Aaron O'Toole? Do you spend time talking about scandals or do you go talk to uh, the new families that are emerging about their economic concerns that are confronting them this afternoon and tomorrow morning? Well, the scandal is going to take care of itself. I mean, the, you know, the, the, all the liberals did in the, by proroguing the house was buy time. Mm -hmm. So the con committees are going to constant reconstitute themselves. There's a whole document dump to deal with. There's more witnesses to call. Uh, the liberals are now leaking on each other. I mean, right. there's, all, there's all sorts of stuff that's going to be the steady drip, 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 drip of the wee scandal. And all of it is that, that what I'm describing as drips is actually acid. It's corrosive. Yeah. Uh, we, and so my expectation is that Aaron O'Toole doesn't really need to focus on that. Yeah. That's just going to happen. The, the thing he really needs to focus on is the, the, the first part, which is reconnecting the Conservative Party with that group of the population that's necessary to win. Uh, you, as an honorary colonel for the uh, Queen's York Rangers, the, the oldest reserve regiment, uh, regiment, I was the former honorary colonel of the Air Force. Aaron O'Toole comes out of a military background as well, although he's a lawyer. Does that still resonate? Yeah, I think it does with certain audiences. Canadians are very, very proud of their military. You would have seen this as the honorary colonel of the Air Force. I mean, you want to get an audience weepy mm -hmm. and, you know, putting their hands over their heart and singing the national anthem at the, their loudest possible um, Talk to uh, them voice. about what we did in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, or yeah. 
Remembrance Day, uh, yep. you know, assemblies are sure. at, at record levels. I mean, I, I remember the day that uh, uh, they unveiled the, um, the, the Billy Barker Memorial here mm-hmm. at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Toronto. There was, the place was packed and there was not a dry eye there. So this is something that is not the 1960s, 70s Canada. This is a different kind of Canada. And the military is part of that. And people do see military service as um, not necessarily the way they look at it in the United States, where, um, you know, it's great family traditions or whatever, but they do see it as a certain level of commitment to the country and a certain level of of commitment to public service. So, um, yeah, it's it's a strong part of Aaron O'Toole's resume. Interesting. I have two um, things I want to ask you about, and they're, they're unrelated, really, but rural Canada, um, mm-hmm. from whence I hail, is, is over. <laughs> 80% of us live in cities, um, yet it's a really foundational fact. It shapes who we are, it shapes my values, it shapes where I come from. So how do we reconcile that, that we won't live there anymore, but it is who we are? And that is one of the big questions that I raise in the book. It's just, you know, 80% of Canadians now live in towns over, uh, over a thousand, 40% of us live in just four cities. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we have this idea that we're the great white North. I actually write a chapter on in the book about <laughs> the great white North and say, well, you know, it's, it's the past. I mean, when was the last time most people in Canada ever felt their lives were threatened by nature? I mean, yes, we just, or, or you saw the Northern lights. I mean, it doesn't happen that I often. I still get to do that at home, but yes, I know do, it's but, pretty rare. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, so the problem that we've got in rural Canada, isn't just that more of us live in cities. It's also the population composition of rural Canada. So it's, it's old. Mm-hmm. So there's a high demand for things like healthcare services. A lot of the income there is actually income transfers through things like pensions and other uh, types of uh, payments that come in. They're not, it's not, it's not, the income isn't derived from, um, from economic activity. Mm-hmm. And the young people that are there, the ones that are born in those kinds of places, even though they have really low birth rates, there still are young people, kids born in those places, mm-hmm. the ambitious ones leave. Yeah. So there's a high level of dependency in these rural communities that really nobody is talking about. And, and we have, you know, uh, a promise that we've made to Canadians that we're going to deliver similar services from coast to coast to coast, regardless of where you live. And it's becoming extremely difficult to do that. And increasingly the political power in the country is going to shift away from those places and it's going to move to the suburbs of, of Canada. So the question is, how can uh, politically the suburbs and rural and small town Canada, which is the conservative constituency, find common cause? And it gets harder and harder over time. The related question, because now I think it's related, is, is to ask you about universities, because a lot of those young kids are leaving. And, and you know, my niece is gone from Wadena, Saskatchewan, to the University of Guelph. Uh, she is making that leap. But she's also going to be sitting in a room uh, doing all her classes online, and she's still paying full ride for that. I don't know how long the COVID impact will last, but the technology is changing. We've, we're seeing major corporations run on Zoom. Nobody's getting on airplanes to the degree that they were. So can universities um, survive? Or what's going to happen to these big businesses and the office towers in which they live? Surely that's going to change? Well, it all depends, right? And I'm going to say that to all, a lot of questions that are related to COVID because the answer right. is we just don't know. So if uh, next week they announce that there's a foolproof vaccine for COVID uh, that has no side effects, 
how yeah. much of this is going to remain? I mean, a lot of the university experience isn't uh, correctly or completely communicated, correctly communicated, but not completely communicated uh, in the way that we're, we're, we're talking today. Mm-hmm. Um, so my expectation is that there is going to be a continuing demand for university education. The bigger problem for universities is that the cohort that they're, of the population that they're target at, targeted at, which is the younger population, is declining. So um, what is the university's role going to be in society going forward? Because they have fewer uh, young people to educate. Uh, that's going to be a very interesting question. Uh, and, you know, um, uh, you know, what is the role of a professor going to be? What is it that we're going to expect them going forward? Uh, there's going to be some aspects of what we uh, went through during this, uh, during this, uh, this pandemic that are probably going to sustain themselves. What parts we don't know. Uh, maybe there's going to be a bit more online education. Maybe there's going to be different aspects that are going to be seen as actually better by doing them through maybe remote learning or whatever. But I think an awful lot is still going to be seen as something that's a, a, a created when people come together. I think the actually the bigger challenge that universities have is not COVID. It's what's changing in the population yeah. overall. And, and in fact, what COVID has done, and when people phone me up and say, uh, you know, I guess everything you said in your book is now irrelevant because COVID's dominant. No, no, no. COVID's <laughs> just highlighted and amplified exactly what I, what I was talking about. Absolutely. It hasn't changed it. So the question is, if you, it, you, you need to modify it a little bit based on what we're experiencing through COVID, but what you really need to understand are the underlying factors that are being affected here. If, and one of the things I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, imagine that this COVID crisis had taken place in 1960 mm-hmm. and compare it to today, yep. where we had hardly any airline travel. Exactly. Uh, where more of us lived in rural Canada, more of us lived in Wadena, um, where the population was much younger on average. And we've found that this is a, a condition that affects generally, but tends to kill more specifically. Yeah. I mean, what would have been the impact on Canada back then? Maybe not shut down the entire economy. It may have been a very <laughs> different kind of an impact. So the, dem- the demography, the changing demography of the country is really what has created the COVID experience that we're going through right now. So understanding that is critical to understanding how we're going to get through this and then what the next stage is going to be. Okay, I'm just going to ask you to make one final prediction. It won't be Canadian oh. politics, but you know what I'm going to ask you. So we've seen the two conventions south of the border now. What's going to happen? Well, I was looking at the uh, the polling averages uh, in the um, uh, in on Real Clear Politics today, and you know the yeah. Republicans have received a bit of a bump. And normally, what you see in an election campaign is we, you know, have our start, and then we get to the point where uh, we have the two conventions, and we go up based on each of party's convention, and then it tends to normalize. Um, it doesn't look like the, Dem- the Republicans are getting a big uh, bump. They're yeah. getting a bit of a bump. Uh, but the more critical part is how they're doing in the, um, in the swing states. And in the swing states, the real clear politics average is very close. Yeah. It's like four points. So looking at that, I would say that unless something changes dramatically between now and election day, it's going to be a close election. Uh, and uh, we're really going to have to look at what happens in those battleground states. Uh, That's one of the things that all the pollsters learned in the last election campaign is that the national polls don't necessarily translate into what's happening on. in this country and every other country. It's exactly the same. There's so many. It's so good to talk to you, Daryl. Thank you so much. And I thank you, Senator. Always a pleasure. I'm going to say everybody really should read next because it's a really concise explanation of, of what change means. Uh, in terms of our society, our economy, our culture, uh, and our people. So really, thank you for doing it. And thanks for being with us. 
It's great. Well, my pleasure, Senator. Thanks for having me. Okay. See you soon. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye.